I want to share a couple holiness stories. If you're new with us, maybe you're not aware of this, but we're a holiness church. We're Wesleyan tradition. Not going to have a whole sermon on that. You're going to have to look at that yourself. But I grew up in a holiness home, definitely a Nazarene home. Nazarenes are a holiness denomination. And as I share these stories, I think half of you or some of you, I don't know how many of you are going to, it's, it's going to feel good because we've come so far, right, from when I was a little kid. But I hope, and I'm assuming it'll happen anyway, um, some of you are going to think, how far gone have we become how, how far off track have we gotten? So there's going to be a little bit of a difference of, of opinion here in these, these little stories. Um, first one, my great-granddad, Nazarene pastor, my granddad, Nazarene pastor, my great-granddad would come spend about three months with us, three months with each of the four kids. And so we were in San Diego, so winter, we got granddad from October to December. And it was great. We loved granddad. He was just a fantastic guy. Um, but there were holiness rules and on Sunday afternoon, literally, you could do nothing but sleep or sit and read your Bible. Nothing, nothing all day. So my parents, they didn't agree with that, but in the, we didn't want to hurt my great-granddad, which like my, was my dad's granddad, you know, so he'd, he'd fall asleep, and, and my parents, go, go, go out the, run, run, don't come back. No, they didn't say that, but um, you, know, you got the idea. And we'd sneak out, and I'm like, holiness is, is, is about sneaking out. Or, or you know, we, uh, the, the pastor's family, the parents went to General Assembly one year, and they thought it would be a good idea for their boys to stay with us. And well, we, we, in the holiness churches, you don't play cards. That was one of our rules. It's not a rule anymore. Um, we, we taught the boys to play poker. And his mom and dad walked into the garage when we were in the middle of a hand. So both sets of parents had words. They had words. But luckily, there was a lot of love, and it didn't wreck the relationship. But it could have. My older sister and my dad, uh, this was, it would have been about 1969, she wanted to wear long pants, not to Sunday morning, to Sunday evening, because Sunday evening was a little bit more dressed down. Well, her and my dad, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, this went on for months. And it pretty much, for about 20 years, wrecked their relationship. Because you don't wear pants to church. That's not what holy people do. And my sister, stubborn, it, they just went. It, it, it was, right? Going to dances and going to movies. Mom saying, just don't tell anybody at church. <laughs> so this is holiness, huh? <laughs> and each one of these stories, here's the crazy part. Mom and dad had opposite opinions. Right? My mom and dad had radically opposite opinions. My dad, I've shared this with you, a conservative Nazarene from the southern hills of Indiana. Hardcore Nazarene holiness. Right? That's the way he was raised. My mom raised in an at-best agnostic house, quasi-Catholic, kind of, sort of, in downtown L.A. So she had radically different opinions than my dad, and I don't know how they got together. It's just the craziest thing. Um, but they had radically different vantage points, right, of what constituted holiness. My mom was very, 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 very practical, having grown up in, in pretty rough neighborhood. But my dad kind of was, didn't deal with the rough parts. You know, he lived out on a farm and, you know, it, it was radically different vantage points. And so when they got together discussing all these, these issues that, that, that us four kids pressed upon them, there were fireworks. There, there were fireworks. It, it was crazy. 
So we're in the fourth week. There's some fun stories. There. Fourth week of our message series here, criticizing Jesus. And something very similar is happening around Jesus, right? He's interpreting the Torah or the Mosaic written law, and he's interpreting the traditions of the elder, which was the oral law, that a couple hundred years after Jesus, it would get written down as law, actually, in what's called the Mishnah. But at this point, it's just all oral traditions. And, 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 and Jesus is issuing some different opinions than the rest of the Jews thought in there were fireworks. I mean, here, here's the basic pattern. We've looked at this. Jesus does or says something. Usually, some, he's, he's making a comment about some outlandish addition to the law or interpretation of the law, which in his opinion missed the heart of God, right? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law kind of got off track, and, and Jesus saw it just crystal clear, right? You're, you're doing these things, but you're leaving out the heart, leaders criticize him. He points out the folly of their objection. He explains the underlying folly of their reasoning, and then the leaders refuse to see or understand, and then they want to kill him, right? Fireworks. Every time, fireworks. Um, now here, and again, the crazy part, they're all Jewish. They're all part of one religious family, one religious community, right? And it's the same with my parents, right? No, they're not Jewish. No, they don't want to kill Jesus, but like, they, they come from different vantage points. They're, 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 rad, they're both Nazarenes, but they don't agree on everything. Both from the same church family. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, boy, big, big, big arguments. And I think this morning what I want to show you is in both groups, the Jewish people then and holiness people, Nazarenes now, um, we struggle. We struggle finding and agreeing on what would be core values Right? What, what, what could we stand up, stand against? You know, everything that we could come up with, if we could stand them up against these core values, we would know yes or no, good or bad. Right? That's kind of the core values. And at its core this morning, in our message this morning, what's the walk or the way of a Jewish person? Right? What, what does it look like to be a Jew, the heart of God? Right? And we're going to compare that to, to, to us, right? At our core, who are we as a holiness people? What are we at our core? And this is important because as our denominational website says, here's what it says right here. Our core values, and there's only three of them, our core values are the essence of our identity, right? The essence of our identity and, the, and support the vision of our denomination, and here's the kicker too, um, help shape our culture, right? These three things are huge, and I say struggle when we, as, as we struggle to define what, who are we at our core. And I say that on purpose because it is a struggle. Right? We only have, again, three core values listed on the website. The first one, we pretty much all agree on. The second one, as I'm going to show you, we're all over the map. We are all over the map. And the third one, we've, we do, we've made some mistakes. Right? And if we're not careful about identifying those mistakes, they keep creeping back into our, our, our family, our, our faith family. Right? So we're going to look at these three things. Um, first of all, let me, let me show you. The, the first thing, we're a Christian people. And again, this is the one we, we, everyone agrees on this one pretty much. Right? We believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, which as the Nicene Creed tells us, is one, holy, universal, and apostolic. In Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit, God the Father offers forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to all the world. Those who respond to God's offer in faith become the people of God. 
Having been forgiven and reconciled in Christ, we forgive and are reconciled to one another. And in this way, we are Christ's church and body and reveal the unity of that body. As the one body of Christ, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We affirm the unity of Christ's church and strive in all things to preserve it. Everybody, that, that, I don't think anybody would have, oh, 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 hold on, don't agree with that one, right? This, this is just the basics that we can all say, yeah, right? We're on the same page on this one. But here's the second one. Nazarenes are a holiness people. Whew. Set apart for God's purposes. And it says this, again, straight out of our, our, our website. Because we are called by Scripture and drawn by grace to worship God and love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, just like Charlie was saying earlier, and our neighbors as ourselves, we commit ourselves fully and completely to God, believing that we can be sanctified wholly as a second crisis experience. Now, there's a lot of debate on that one, a lot of discussion on that one, but that's not even the big one. Right? A lot of people, y'all thinking, oh, that's our big, that's when we all, you know, the Nazarenes, they're that. They believe that thing. But that's not the kicker. Here's the kicker. We believe that the Holy Spirit convicts, cleanses, fills, and empowers us as the grace of God transforms, transforms us day by day into, listen very carefully, a people of love, spiritual discipline, ethical and moral purity, compassion, and justice. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that restores us in the image of God and produces in us the character of Christ. So here's our question this morning. What does a people of love, spiritual discipline, ethical and moral purity, compassion, and justice even look like? Can I just throw out some ideas very quickly? Don't stop on any one of them. You're going to get all bent out of shape. Just Is holiness having to sneak out on a Sunday? Is holiness about my sister Joanne's pants? Is holiness about jeans in the pulpit, let alone no suit? Is holiness no running, eating, drinking, and babies in the sanctuary? Is holiness men wearing skirts in Polynesian worship settings? Not allowing women to serve as pastors? Not allowing a divorced or married person to serve? How about unwed mothers? Exactly how much do we have to love my LGBTQ neighbor? Can a holiness church fly the rainbow flag and just let God decide who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out? Can a church have a bar ministry, right, driving drunks home at night? Or might that be perceived as enabling, agreeing with, or even actively supporting a drunken lifestyle? Does it mean that folks have tattoos and piercings would feel most comfortable in the alternative service, right, where people are close to holy, but they're not quite there yet? <laughs> How about shaming those who work and even play on Sundays because their jobs don't even allow any other day off? Does it require no jewelry and makeup? How about on guys? How about bowling alleys and movies? Does holiness sound like a Gregorian chant? or choirs, or organs, or drums and guitars, or hymns, or praise songs, right? Where was the spiritual sweet spot in that progression? Should messages and sermons still be delivered in Latin, right? Is the King James Version somehow the spiritual sweet spot in the long line in history of biblical Bible translations? Will the Church of the Nazarene still not have any event in Sin City, Las Vegas? <laughs> 
If I land on the wrong side of the creation evolution debate or the end times debate or the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible debate or I believe in the wrong theory of the atonement, will I still be holy or will I then be unholy? Like, so I, that, I mean, that, that's a lot. That's just the tip of the iceberg. All across the world, holiness churches are they're wrestling with these very issues. Can we love like this or are we sliding, Right? Are we no longer holy? Did we give up holiness in order to satisfy the culture? I mean, all these kind of crazy thoughts. And we as a holiness people, we've we, we got to wrestle with this stuff. This is, this is our thing. This is our bag. Third value, third core value, we're a missional people. We are a sent people responding to the call of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go into all the world. But we have made a few mistakes, right? And we've got to live up to some of these mistakes. We actually decreed that Christian culture is equal or synonymous to North American and European culture, right? If you didn't act dressed like North Americans or Europeans, well, you weren't a Christian. Don't care. You had to look and dress and sound and look. I mean, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. Kind of like Jews insisting that Gentiles had to weave Jesus into Judaism, right? We kind of decided that other cultures had to weave Jesus into our North American, European culture, or else it wasn't Christianity, Like our culture was somehow morally and superior, spiritually superior, and all the others were evil. So last week we looked at demonizing perspectives different from our own, but this week we're gonna have to be honest with ourselves. Have we over spiritualized some of our own, some of our own perspectives? And again, as last week, Mark has a pattern that kind of helps us understand where he's going, what he wants us to understand, and then we're supposed to go and do likewise, right? Here's the pattern. We looked at this last week, and, and it's a little bit different this week, but it's still this, this pattern that John likes. We've flipped the disciples, and the crowd is now, um, has replaced the crowd and the family, but Jesus is still right there in the middle, surrounded by people who don't like him, who disagree with him to the point where they want to kill him, right? So that's it. So we're going to start right with the disciples, right at the top of the outline. This is in chapter 6, verse 45 through 46. It says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida where he had dismissed the crowd, and after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. He had just fed a Jewish crowd of 5,000, right? That's a pretty big deal. I mean, we're having 60, 70 people over to our house this afternoon, and we're about to have a nervous breakdown. He fed 5,000. It's amazing. 5,000 men and their families. And the crowd just wouldn't leave him alone. They were just, they were just enthralled. It's amazing what this guy Jesus was doing. But later that night... The boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake, which was actually the early morning watch, the fourth watch, the last watch. And if you're kind of connecting these things, I, I was fascinated with this. This is the exact same time, the same watch that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Jesus comes walking across the water. Now, understand, if you're Jewish, the water, the sea is evil, and so literally, if you're Jewish, this, this whole scene is like Jesus walking across the chasm of death. And we, we're all just like, hey, he's walking on water. Wow. <laughs> so much more. So much more. Verses 48 through 50, it says this. He was about to pass them by. Now, don't get all bent out of shape on that one. He's done this before. Right? He appears like he's moving on, like the disciples. He was, he was going to go into a city, and it looks like he's appearing to go on, but then somebody asked him to come in. Like Jesus does this. He, he looks like he's not going to stop, and he's giving you the opportunity 
to seek and knock. He's not going to press himself on you. But he's, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> Want to talk to me? Here I am. But I'm not going to, huh, on you. Right? So, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hard and like, where did that come from, right? Mark is hinting that Jesus is getting a little bit exasperated, just a little bit. The people not understanding his mission, his purpose, he could understand that for the time being, right? He, he, he slowly starts pressing into the crowd, but here at the beginning, he's really easy on the crowd. Um, but his disciples not understanding? I mean, he's with them constantly, and he's constantly telling them and showing these things. And he had just fed 5,000 plus, and they still couldn't conceive of him walking across the water like... Hardened hearts really, uh, they failed to understand. Pharaoh failed to understand God's power, right? So his heart was hardened, kind of a scriptural way of saying they're just not getting it. So this time, it's the disciples who are hard of hearing and not seeing, right? And the crowds, well, they still love Jesus. When they crossed over, they landed at Jen and anchored there. Um, as soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever he heard he was. And wherever he went into the villages, the towns, and countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. And this is huge. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, notice the marketplace setting. Crowds of sick people. And you're an observant Jew trying to stay ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. You avoid the marketplace. Or when you come back from the marketplace, you make sure you do your ceremonial washings because you've been defiled because you were hanging out and rubbing shoulders with sick people, and they're unclean. And that makes you unclean. Impurity is a constant threat for temple purity. Now, again, we know that Jesus is an observant Jew, right? He's got the, the, the tassel on his garment, which observant Jews. And Isaiah, back several hundred years earlier, 700 years earlier, had said that the, the, the Messiah would have healing in his wings, which referred to the tassels on the end of their, their robes that the observant Jews wore. And so all they did is they would touch and, and they would be healed. And that's what the crowd was doing. They knew the Isaiah prophecy and they were just reaching out. And, and here's the crazy part. Jesus wasn't being made unclean. If the Pharisees had been doing this, they would have been immediately made unclean. But Jesus makes them clean. He makes the unclean clean and he doesn't become unclean himself. That's the crazy part. He, he's, he's contagious. His holiness is contagious. Their sickness isn't to him. So, following Mark's outline, the disciples are confused, the crowds, they just want to be healed. And again, Jesus seems to be okay with this at this time. He's going to, get, he's, he's going to tell them what they need to know later. And now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem. Now, notice what's happening. Right back in chapter 3 of Mark, it had just been some local Pharisees. And then in chapter 6 and 7, it had been... Um, some teachers of the law had come down from Jerusalem. Now it's both groups. So Mark is trying to tell us that pressure is intensifying on Jesus. And at the very same time, Jesus is 
My disciples aren't getting it, <laughs> right? The crowds, they don't get it, but my disciples, they need to get it. They need to understand because this thing is ramping up, right? I'm not going to be able to control this thing pretty soon. So the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come down from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw that some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And you all think, ooh, gross, but for his Gentile readers, Gentiles, we're all Gentiles here. Mark explains. Listen to this. The Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders, right? And the mission, again, this is a document um, where they took these oral traditions that were added onto the written Mosaic law, and several hundred years after Jesus, they got written up and codified into law, um, but in that law, it states this, that a person, the hands had to be immersed in a valid immersion pool, which was about 191 gallons of water. And it had to be undrawn water, which simply means it couldn't have been put there by human hands. It had to rain, or it had to be a spring. It was just this crazy regulation. And, and so what happens when you run out of water? Well, they would have a bigger pool up here and a little pool down here. And the idea is if this one empties out, you could put man carried water in there, but then you would let this water up here pour into there, and it made it clean. So it was this very complex, you know, washing, and, and somehow that would make you internally pure. <laughs> and my mom always tried to convince me of that. I never believed her. Um, their opinion, the, the Pharisees' opinion, is that if Judea and the people were to be God's holy people, then everybody should follow the priestly regulations. And this was a priestly regulation. It wasn't meant for the people. But the Pharisees got all so gung-ho. It's like, man, if we're going to be holy, 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 holy people, we all got to be holy, holy, holy people, not just the priests. So now you all got to follow all the rules that we got to follow too. So that was kind of what was going on here, right? And this whole ceremonial washing of nearly everything was one of those priestly regulations that had become over time law for everybody, the tradition of the elders. Whew, don't mess with that. So the tradition of the elders lies at the heart of the dispute. Let me keep reading verse 4, chapter 7. When they came down from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash because they know that they had been defiled. They'd been made unclean, so they have to, right, come back from the marketplace. And they observe many other traditions, washing cups, pitchers, and kettles. Again, notice that when the Pharisees come from the marketplace with all the sick and the unclean people, they become unclean, but not Jesus. And so the religious leaders questioned Jesus. Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, again, if Jesus was a teacher concerned with holy living, which he was, why don't his disciples walk according to Torah? Right? The idea behind Torah is if you followed it, then you would walk according to God's laws and everything would be wonderful. And all these dietary regulations, they kind of served as boundary markers, like we have some of those too, right? I'm not wearing the correct boundary marker for lots of folks because I'm not wearing a suit and tie. That, that, that's an issue, and I understand that for some folks. That's one of those boundary markers. And we do. We have a code of conduct in our manual, and we have a lot of boundary markers, but here's the deal. The boundary markers are simply meant to, as kind of as a North Star, right, for us to strive for, to, to try to achieve Right? It is never, ever, 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 ever meant to judge anyone else's progress and to hold them down because they don't measure up to wherever you are in your progress. It is simply the code of conduct is just, again, this, this North Star guide that helps all of us get closer to God, 
but we go and grab it and say, hey, you, you're not measuring up. Hey, you, you're not measuring up. And it becomes a weapon, right? Jesus answers, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain and their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So Jesus is accused of ignoring a man-made law, but the religious leaders that we're about to find out, they're following a man-made law, and in order to do that, they actually have to violate one of God's laws. So, I mean, they've, they've got things turned upside down, completely upside down. So we now move from the traditions of the elders to the heart of the Pharisees' problem, their issue, right? What constitutes holiness? Is it outward or inward? Where does it start, right? Because obviously Jesus and the Pharisees had two wildly different opinions. Pharisees, well, if I clean my hands, I'm internally clean, and Jesus likes. He continues, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, and again, when they say Moses, just throw in the word Torah, right? Those two words to a Jewish person are almost interchangeable. Moses is Torah. Torah is Moses, right? Boom. So Torah says, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Again, notice that Jesus chose a command from the very, very heart of the Ten Commandments. This is serious business. What the Pharisees are trying to do, Jesus is not going to stand for it. So he's pulling out the big guns. He's pulling, out, he's pulling out mom and dad, right? He's serious here, mom and dad. He turns the table on them, exposing the hypocrisy of their accusations. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother Corbin, that is devoted to God, basically Corbin is a gift that you devote to the temple, right? This is the temples, right? Then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother, Right? So Corbin, and again, I'm going to say this very, very carefully because I'm not a tax expert. I'm not a money expert for that matter. But Corbin is kind of a religious tax evasion, um, kind of a kickback for the temple authorities. You know, you promise something to them and you don't have to use it to say, help your folks. And at the same time, you look pious. You look great, right? Even if you don't actually physically give it to the temple, you can basically use it for your own holy purposes until you die, thus never having to use it or sell it to help your folks or do anything good with it. And it's called, you're holy then. And Jesus saw right through this. And again, notice he's not condemning or abolish, abolishing this tradition of the elders. He's just saying, don't let it supersede God's laws. That's all he's saying here. He's saying that their attitude toward his disciples' behavior demonstrates just how easily, as, as Isaiah declared, right? And just like before with the traditions of the elders, they've moved from honoring the law and so the God who gave it to elevating the tradition and so the human ingenuity that produced it. Mark 7, 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down, and you do so many things like this. They can keep their heart and spirit from God by applying the rules from men. And we just kind of got to dig deep and ask ourselves, is there anything that we as a holiness church, do we run this danger? Because by extension, they can keep their hearts and their spirits from other people by applying the rules of men. It becomes an intensely private thing, honoring God with their lips, but with hearts a million miles away from God. 
And now from the religious leaders back out to the crowds. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. Now, again, he's kind of plain. He's half talking about food and half talking about the spirit, spiritual things, right? He keeps kind of going back and forth. And if you're not careful, you're going to get really weirded out on this one here, right? In other words, what he's trying to say is that what we eat, it doesn't affect the essence of who or what we are. It doesn't affect our our attitudes and our personalities and, and who we are in our hearts and in our soul, But what comes out of a person in words and behavior, and again, he's playing with this word, you can go to other places, is expressive of who and what you are. Your words and your behavior tell me a lot about you. You can tell me a bunch of stuff, but when I watch you, I find out a lot more. And you do the same thing, right? I can stand up here and talk to Tom Blue in the face, but if you look at my life, you think, yeah, he's full of baloney. Or he's sincere. Now, again, not sure if the crowds understood this, but again, Jesus doesn't press the matter with him, but he does with his disciples, right? He really gets into them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Now, let's all just take a breathe here, a breath here. We kind of got to give the disciples a little bit of wiggle room, right? They had eyes, they had ears, but they simply, they had such a long tradition that what Jesus was saying it was going to take a long time. And I think this was Jesus' exasperation is, man, I've been working with you for three years and we're still going over this stuff. It's funny in the church, there are battles that I think started when I was a baby and they're still being fought. It, it, it's just the crazy. And, and I'm not bagging on either side. These are, these are heartfelt issues. These are important to people and I recognize that. But we all need to recognize that some of them aren't Some of them don't involve the heart. They just involve habits that became traditions, and then they became pillars of the faith. And like, oh, we can't change that. I know churches that in the middle of Saturday night, Saturday night heights, the pulpit disappeared. Nobody knew where the pulpit went. People freaked out. This is what happened in in holiness churches. Oh, you can't remove the pulpit because we're not a holiness church anymore. The pulpit's got to be there. No, it doesn't. Anyway. Their inability to grasp this new perspective it just shows how limited your perspective can be when you are holding on so tightly to the past and what has gone on before. Even Peter required a vision to change his mind. Right? And the early church had to hold a special council. Right? This thing didn't die right here. Right? With this teaching, Jesus didn't go, oh, right, got that one. They've all got it figured out. Man, they're going to be dealing with this for the next generation or more, these dietary issues, just like we're still wrestling with, with dress issues and music issues and, and all sorts of just kind of things that really have nothing to do with the heart. But some of us have gotten to the point where it is a heart issue, right? So Jesus tries once again with a fairly simple physiological biology lesson that he hopes will show his disciples a spiritual lesson. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, right? It goes into their stomach and then out the body, it's hearts that are hardened, not stomachs. And again, this is a radical teaching. It went against everything that they had known their entire lives. This is huge. He's just like, bam. But this isn't even the big issue for Jesus, right? There's the traditions of the elders, yes. There's Corbin, yes. There's inward, outward holiness, yes. Those are all huge issues for Jesus. He's trying to, there's a bigger issue, though. There's a bigger issue. 
their refusal to recognize who Jesus was. He was the Son of God, an incredibly special messenger from God to reveal to us God's will. And on top of that, they failed to understand that as God's special messenger, right, that he was redefining holiness. And Mark makes this point in the very next, very next verse, verses 19 and 20. It says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Boom, he redefined holiness. Boom, just like that. And again, a generation later, they're still, they're still, this, that's the way the church rolls. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. Again, for the Pharisees, holiness was an external matter of avoiding the unclean. And for Jesus, holiness was an internal matter of loving the unclean. Let me say that again. For the Pharisees, holiness was an external matter of avoiding the unclean. For Jesus, holiness is an internal matter, a heart matter of loving the unclean. For Jesus, everything external originates internally. For the Pharisees, it was the opposite, right? If I don't wash my clothes, somehow I'm internally impure. That makes zero sense. So them it did. I'm, I'm being mean. It's the inner life that generates the following list, not what you eat or any other external boundary markers that people might come up with. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Notice what Jesus just did. It was like the sleight of hand. Here the Pharisees were all worried about being defiled. And Jesus says that moral defilement is actually ritually defiling. They're just like, ah. By leaving the heart out of any act of worship, we become defiled. We become arrogant. We become less than what God wanted us to be. Any act of worship, and you leave your heart out of it, you're you're. Dangerous ground, dangerous ground. So what are we to take home from this episode? I think at least four things very quickly, very quickly. 1141, here we go. Number one, God's people are notoriously slow to respond to change, right? We all know this. And I, and I quoted this. The instinctive conservatism of almost all religious communities which resist any change to fundamental traditional values until there is no other option. Like, do we want to be that person we don't make a move until there's no other. We're about to die, so let's make a move. Second thing, a concern for holy living can lead to different conclusions on microethical issues. And I listed a whole bunch of them when I was playing games there at the end of the, the beginning of the sermon. Different cultures will approach God in different ways. And that's okay. That's okay. Our unity isn't in boundary markers. Our unity is birthed by the Holy Spirit and demonstrated in love of God and neighbor. Holiness people are notoriously preoccupied with boundary markers, whether it's dietary code, dress codes, or all these other culturally conditioned micro-ethical standards, right? They cannot measure the true inner quality of a person. They just can't. The third takeaway, legalism is the Achilles heel of the holiness churches. With legalism, the performance of duties and the avoidance of vice. That's everything that we do. That's, that's our measuring stick which quickly, quickly degenerates into hypocrisy and judgmentalism. And finally, holiness is a matter of the heart. Only then will it result in behavior that reflects the character and the will of God. Those who see holiness as separation and performance are at risk of adhering to codes instead of attending to the mission. And so, 
as has always been the case. When habits so quickly become traditions and traditions become pillars of the faith, it's worth asking this Sunday, do any of our traditional boundary markers, this is, we all need to wrestle with this, get in the way of love, forgiveness, mercy, or grace to the unclean amongst us. Put more simply, is it worth, it's worth asking, do any of our holiness traditions have unholy outcomes? And this is what we in our Sunday school classes in our small groups, this is, this, this is what we wrestle with, and I, and I just hope and pray that we arrive at the heart of the issue and not in, on the externals. And holiness churches, we're holiness churches. We can go down that rabbit hole so quickly. We need to be careful. Lead with our hearts. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you so much for this narrative from, from your apostle Mark. Um, Lord, help us be careful. We don't want to demonize other people, but we don't want to over-spiritualize some of our own distinctives. Father, help us keep the heart in everything that we do. In your son's name I pray. Amen.